pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the promise that you are sending your son to return to this earth. Lord, we look forward to that day and we pray with the Apostle John. Oh Lord, come quickly. We, we long to see you. We long to look upon your face. We long for you to take your rightful place as the king over all the earth. We wish to see your dominion exercised without the temptation of Satan. We wish to see your blessedness come to your people without any interference from any of the powers of darkness. And your people long to walk perfectly in the righteousness that you purchased for them on the cross. So with the Apostle John, we say, come quickly, Lord. Come, come, we pray. Father, in the meantime, as your people continue to live beset by these trials and temptations, we ask, Lord, that you would walk with us. We know that you will. As we look at your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would open our minds to understand what it is you're trying to say to the extent that you allow us to. Father, we know there are many difficult things in Matthew 24 that we will never be fully to grasp. Help us to use those doubts and those uncertainties as an opportunity and an occasion for greater faith and greater confidence in you. Lord, we pray this morning that the word, the words of my mouth as I expose and exegete these scriptures would be pleasing to you. And we also ask, Lord, that the meditation of our hearts as your spirit brings understanding and illumination would be acceptable in your sight. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in Matthew chapter 24 and stay there, okay? Uh, we uh, generally take a smaller sort of bite-sized chunk of Scripture and, uh, you know, maybe a verse or a couple of verses or even a paragraph, and, and we'll begin to work through that. Uh, can't really do that with Matthew chapter 24, at least not today. In order for you to understand and have confidence in the exegesis of any particular verse or any particular paragraph, you really need to be able to see Matthew chapter 4 as a whole. You need to see the whole structure of it. You need to understand the whole thrust and the movement and the direction that Jesus is moving uh, before you can have any confidence or any certainty regarding the individual particulars. When I was about four years old, I recall very clearly uh, being invited by my older brothers who were about uh, you know, eight, nine, ten years old at that time, uh, being invited by them to go down to this uh, pond that was in the back of the pasture where we lived there uh, in order to go for a swim, which for a little brother to be invited by older brother to do anything was an incredibly wonderful blessing to be included by them. I thought that was just the greatest thing ever. One small problem, four-year-old Josh doesn't know how to swim. And uh, they, they knew that, and I didn't. <laughs> and that's why they included me. And so we make our way down, and for fun, they took me out onto the edge of the dock at the, in this, this, cow, this cow pond, watering tank, and they said, okay, Josh, we're going to throw you in, to which I kind of scratched my head, and eh, it doesn't seem like a good idea. You know, I was a little bit reluctant having seen what lay in front of me, and they said, there's only one way to learn how to swim. And my oldest brother thought that as a means of comforting me, he would offer me this little tidbit of wisdom. Water is comprised of two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen. So really, a third of what you see in front of you, you're capable of breathing. 
if you panic, breathe deeply, and your suffering will soon be at an end. <laughs> now, these are older brothers tormenting younger brother. I got through it just fine. I'm here, okay? It's okay. Like, I survived. I survived. But sometimes I've often allowed my thoughts to go back to that memory because the question that the disciples ask is on par, it's on track with, you know, me thinking that my older brother is going to teach me to swim by throwing me into the pond. They ask a question, and in their own minds, they're not even, I don't think, fully understanding the nature or the full extent of the question they're posing to Christ, and I don't think that they fully grasp the deluge of information that Jesus is about to pour out on them. And I am 100% convinced as we'll see from Acts chapter 1, that they didn't get what he was saying. If those who were actually there talking face-to-face with Jesus didn't get what he was saying, then we as a church, removed by two millennia from this event, need to approach this text with humility and with a healthy amount of what I would call openness to different viewpoints, different ideas. Not all of us in this room are going to look at these passages the same way. Not all of us in this room are going to have the same view of the end times. Not all of us in this room are going to employ the same system of interpretation when it comes to addressing this particular paragraph. And that's okay. Indeed, I think it's a good thing. I think that our fellowship and our brotherhood in this room, with those differences of opinion regarding end times, is a blessing and not a detriment, as we shall see as we get into this. So what I want to do for you today is drown you in the many different viewpoints regarding this text of Scripture. In the weeks ahead, we'll begin to pick our way through it. We'll begin to evaluate some of those viewpoints, and we'll begin to try to come to some understanding of what it is that Jesus is saying. But for today, I'm going to just look specifically at verse 4 with you towards the end of the message. But before we jump in, I want to share with you some of the viewpoints of the whole structure of Matthew chapter 24 so you can understand that in this room, there are individuals that will hold to a different way of looking at this text. There are three broad systems of interpretation when it comes to the end times, when it comes to prophecy. There are three systems of interpretation, uh, three ways of looking at, big word, are you ready for it? Eschatology, from the Greek word eschatos, uh, addressing the eschaton, literally meaning the end things or the things which are at the end, okay? So the doctrine of eschatology, the doctrine of last things or end things, that's what we're looking at. And there are three broad viewpoints that are utilized by individuals in this room. I I can name individuals in this room who are part of our fellowship, a part of this church, dear brothers and sisters whom I love, who would, some would hold to one particular form and some would hold to another particular form. The first is the one that I suspect most of you are very, very familiar with, commonly known as dispensationalism or premillennialism. Dispensationalism or premillennialism, and there is a difference between what, I, what is referred to as historic premillennialism as opposed to dispensationalism, and it has to do with the timing of the rapture. 
Indeed, in your conversations with each other, I would suspect most of you uh, would hold to some form of dispensationalism or some form of premillennialism. What I mean by that is that we, those who hold to that viewpoint, would say uh, from their understanding of scriptures, and I want to be very clear, everybody, regardless of which of, the, which of these viewpoints I'm about to mention, believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, believe that the Bible is true, believe that it is without fault or any mixture of error, and yet they come to these different ideas, and, and that's okay. Those who would hold to premillennialism would suggest that at some point in time there is a great force of evil that is going to come upon this earth, presided over and led by an arch-devil, an arch-sort of character of evil commonly referred to as the Antichrist. At a period of time, this individual will rise to power and dominance. He will have great influence over world affairs. He might even preside over a singular world government, controlling and dictating the events of human history and and over us. Uh, I mean that in the sense that he's in charge, not in the sense that he's greater than Jesus. I don't mean that he's sovereign, just that he's going to be granted great authority for a period of time. After a period which is commonly said to be about seven years of great tribulation, Jesus Christ will return to this earth. He will destroy Antichrist. He will throw down his one world government, and he will establish a kingdom which will exist on this earth for a period of time that is referred to as the millennium. It is referred to in the book of Revelation, which is about a thousand years. Now, scholars will disagree whether that is a literal number or a symbolic or a figurative number. It's a really long time. We can agree on that much. Jesus Christ will come at the end of a seven-year period of intense persecution. Uh, He will destroy Antichrist at the end of that seven-year period of time, and he will establish a millennial reign. At the end of that millennium, whether it's a thousand years or just a really long time, he will then usher in the eternal state after one final battle with Satan. The dragon will be uh, released from the pit for one grand conflict known as Armageddon, and after that, Jesus will be victorious The saints will rule with Christ and the eternal state will be ushered in and we will see the beginning of a recreation. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. That is premillennialism. What we mean by that is that Christ will come for his people before, prior to his millennial reign, premillennial. The second viewpoint is known as postmillennialism. Postmillennialism takes a completely different understanding of many of these texts and many of these passages. The average postmillennial will view all of these references in the scriptures uh, to the reign, this blessed reign of Christ. They will understand a much closer union between Jesus and His church, and they will argue that a that the that Jesus is ruling on this earth now, presently through his church, and that the church will walk in greater and greater uh, victory, that there will be greater and greater successes that will be had by the church, and that ultimately the church's efforts proclaiming the gospel on this earth will usher in a period of peace and prosperity and blessedness in which all mankind, through the efforts of the church fulfilling the great commission, all mankind will bow to Christ and will worship Jesus at the end of a really long period of time in which the church has exerted this authority and dominion over the earth. Then Christ will return. Therefore, his return is considered to be after the millennial reign, which he exercises 
through the church. Then he will usher in the final state, the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state. And yet a third view is known as amillennialism. Amillennialism doesn't view references to the millennium to be any sort of a millennial reign on this earth. They would view references to the millennium to be a reference to the eternal reign of Christ throughout all of eternity. Your average amillennial will view the Christian as doing his job, proclaiming the gospel, encountering persecution, enduring suffering, but ultimately this world is going to come to an end. Christ will return. There will be no millennial reign, per se, of Christ over unbelievers in this present age. That's why it's referred to as amillennial. Their, their understanding of the millennium is not that there is a literal millennial reign, but that from the book of Revelation it is symbolic. And that at an appropriate time and in his own way, he will bring this age to an end. He will judge unbelievers in righteousness. Uh, Believers will be granted a resurrected body, and then the eternal state will begin. Those are the three broad systems of interpretation. Coming back to premillennialism, you'll have many different flavors and many different stripes of premillennialists. You'll have some that will suggest that there is a rapture, a secret rapture, That takes place at the beginning of the seven-year reign in which believers will be whisked off of this earth and only unbelievers will be left to suffer the persecution of Antichrist and the powers of darkness. You'll have some premillennialists who will suggest that the rapture actually occurs in the middle of the seven-year reign of Antichrist. And then you'll have other premillennialists who will say there's a rapture that happens at the end of that seven-year period uh, of tribulation. And you'll have different combinations of this group as well. You'll have some who will say there's a rapture at the beginning, and there's a rapture, another one, at the end. Or they may say there's a rapture at the beginning and another one in the middle, or there's one in the middle and another one at the end. And it's kind of just different people have different arguments for different viewpoints. Now, are you all drowning at this point? (laughs) I take from your laughter that you are. And that's okay. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 24 for many, many weeks. And as we work our way through it, we will constantly refer back to these broad systems of interpretation, and you will become very, very familiar with them. I want you to understand that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we all view these passages differently. There are many good reasons for dividing from one another, doctrinally speaking, this is not one of them. Amen? Yes. need to be a little more enthusiastic than that. Yes. Okay. The reason why I need your enthusiasm is because as I work my way through this text, I am going to offend all of you. Okay? And I want you all to love me at the end of today. Okay? I want you to still think of me as your pastor. And I'm going to work my way through this text. We're going to sketch the three broad outlines for all of those different systems of interpretation. I will emphasize to you their great strengths where they are really good and solid in their interpretation of the passage. And then I will also bring out for you their great weaknesses. And this is the other point I want to make. When I criticize your particular form of eschatology, I will make reference to a scholar who happens to hold to that particular form of eschatology, and I will allow him to do the bulk of the criticizing so that you don't have to be as angry with me. Fair enough? Okay, let's get started. The first one I want to look at is 
classic dispensationalism that holds to a pre-tribulation rapture as well as a post-tribulation rapture followed by a literal millennial reign. Um, this, will, this, takes very, this particular theory takes various forms as it approaches Matthew chapter 24. You'll notice that uh, it's the last week, it's the Passion Week, Jesus leaves the temple, he's on his way out of town, and the disciples are commenting, oh, you know, look at this temple, it's beautiful, it's got all these wonderful features, isn't this a great thing? And Jesus says, oh, just so you know, like, that's going to be all destroyed do-do-do-do, and he's on his way. Well, that kind of sinks into their hearts, and they're like, oh, man, like, he's talking about the end of the world. They make a confusing assumption, which will color their question. They will conflate the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem with the second coming of the Lord. And that will influence the question that they pose to Jesus, which they ask him in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives. And again, I just want to pause here. I will refer to this routinely as the Olivet Discourse, okay? That label, that title for this whole discussion that comes in Matthew chapter 24 comes from this first verse, verse 3. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. They sit down to have a little pause. They've had about a 45-minute walk at this point coming from the temple compound. Uh, We theorize, we don't know exactly where on the Mount of Olives they have decided to stop and have a break, but around 30 to 45-minute walk. They've had 30 to 45 minutes to chew over this statement that Jesus has just made it's all going to be destroyed. And now they ask him this question in verse 3, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Note the question. Note it carefully. Tell us when will these things be? What has Jesus said? He said the temple in Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. So their question, their first question is when? When will the temple and Jerusalem get wiped out. But in their minds, they think that that is simultaneous with the return of the Lord, which leads to their second question. Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So they put it all together in one giant question. And here's how classic dispensationalists argue with this. This is the the theory. Verses 4, where Jesus begins his reply, all the way down to verse 28 is a description of the seven-year great tribulation before which Jesus comes in a secret rapture and after which Jesus comes again in his second advent to set up his millennial reign. So in verse 4, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. He begins this discussion from here in verse 4 all the way down to verse 28. So if you want to flip the page, I'll show you where he ends in verse 28, for as the lightning comes, this is verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Whenever, wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. Classic premillennialism argues that Jesus' interpretation of this passage from verse 4 all the way down to verse 28 is talking about the seven-year tribulation in which Antichrist is going to come and begin a worldwide campaign of persecution. Now, uh, it goes a little bit further. Verses 36, jump. I know you're going to say, well, what about verse 29? Just hang on. Go from verse 28 down to verse 36. Verse 36 all the way to verse 40 uh, is going to then describe a pre-tribulation. These are events that happen just before the seven-year period of tribulation in which Antichrist comes. 
And then verses 29 and 35, jumping back now in the passage, going backwards to the middle of the passage, verses 29 to 35 deal with events that happen after the tribulation when Jesus comes in his millennial reign. And some of you are now starting to slip below the water, aren't you? Aren't you? Okay, that's okay. I I want you to know that that's okay. What I've just given you is the classic outline in which the disciples ask a question, when will this happen and when will you come again? And they think, when will the destruction of Jerusalem happen and when will you come again? They kind of blend those two together in one question. And the classic premillennial answer has been to say, well, he talks about it, this here, and then he jumps a little bit further down, and he talks about it here, and then, oh, we come back to the middle of the passage, and, and that's when he talks about, you know, the second reign. Their question is confused, and if we accept the classic premillennial interpretation of this passage, we would have to suggest that Jesus' response is equally confusing. Maybe we don't dare go so far as to say that Jesus is confused. But we would have to say that he provides a very confusing answer to a confused question. There are several refinements to this theory. Proposed by John Walvoord, one of the preeminent dispensational theologians of the last hundred years, former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Uh, He sees the chapter's sole allusion to the fall of the temple in AD 70 in verse 2. Go back to verse 2. Jesus makes the statement, You see all these, do you? Again, talking about the temple. Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And John Walvoord, in attempting to refine premillennial dispensational uh, system of interpretation for this passage, says, The only time Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple comes in verse 2. So when the disciples ask the question in verse 3, when is this going to happen? According to John Walver, Jesus never actually comes to answer that question. Which is an interesting sort of non-answer for Jesus. It's kind of a stretch of the imagination. And this is, again, if you're a premillennial dispensationalist, some of you are looking at me like, uh, I don't know about this. I- I'm giving you John Walbert, okay? <laughs> so you can still love me afterwards, all right? I just want you to know that. John Walbert says that there are really three distinct questions that are being asked here by the disciples. And John Walbert's theory is that the disciples aren't confused at all. They know there are three distinct questions that need to be asked, and they ask all three of them. Question number one, what will be the sign of your coming? Question number two, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And as far as John Walvoord is concerned, the question which is of least significance to them, though it is the question they ask first in the text, when will the destruction of the temple be? Now, this is John Walvoord's argument. His statement is that Jesus, he doesn't really bother too much with the, the question of um, the uh, temple, that he just jumps straight to discussing when it is that he will return. And everything that follows is in answer to that question. Now, our brothers and sisters from the all-millennial and post-millennial schools of thought will say, that is a stretch. And, let's be honest, it is. But there are other things about that particular interpretation which are a little bit confusing. Most notably, I want you to jump down to verse 34. According to premillennialists, Jesus is talking about 
all of these things happening during the seven-year tribulation. Except Jesus makes a statement which doesn't quite fit. In verse 34, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, the disciples are the ones that asked him the question, when's this going to happen? And we assume for a moment, if we agree with Dr. Walverd, that they don't really care about when the destruction of the temple is going to happen, even though that's the first question they ask. They're really just concerned with when Jesus is going to return and what the sign of his return will be. And Jesus, in responding to them, understands that they don't really care about the destruction of the temple, that they're really just curious to know about his return. And therefore, his statement here in verse 34, this generation will not pass away. The disciples know Jesus isn't talking to them or their generation. They know and they understand implicitly that Jesus is talking about some future generation, some distant generation that's going to behold and understand all of these signs. And that generation, once they see all of these things starting to unfold, that group of people will not die until Jesus returns. Now, brothers and sisters, let's be honest with ourselves. I don't think that's exactly how the disciples understood it, which means that if we go with that, I mean, we got to assume on some level that Jesus is being coy or trying to misdirect. And that doesn't seem to really fit with his character with his disciples. So the great strength, however, let me give you the positives now. Now I've upset many of you. The great strength of this system of interpretation is that it deals seriously with the time markers. Okay? You'll notice a couple of them. Going back to the uh, verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation. So, so there's a literal time. There's some sort of a time marker there that you can look at. You see something, this abomination of desolation, whatever that might be. When you see it, when you observe it, when in history, when in time you observe that event, then you know to do X, Y, Z. You jump a little bit further down in the text, verse 29, he makes this statement immediately after the tribulation of those days. So throughout this passage, there are clear references to historical events, and there are time markers which seem to order those references. And one of the great strengths of premillennialism and dispensationalism is that it does a good job with those time markers. It lays out a pattern of history that deals seriously with Jesus's references to these different time markers. The only problem is that even if we embrace those time markers, we will still struggle with certain elements of the passage. I've already mentioned one of them to you. This generation will not pass away. Can't really think that the disciples didn't assume that that was a reference to them. But here's another one. If you go back to the passage on the destruction of the temple, Jesus makes statement in verse uh, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, the holy of holies, this is the temple, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, if we are going to take this passage literally, which premillennialists suggest that we ought to do. Jesus has not yet come, 
And here's a problem. There is no temple in Jerusalem right now for a antichrist figure or uh, the abomination of desolation referred to in the prophet Daniel and mentioned by Jesus here in Matthew 24. There's no temple for that abomination of desolation or antichrist to go and stand in the Holy of Holies. Which means that in order for this passage to be fulfilled, there would have to be a reconstruction of the temple. There, there just would have to be. There would have to be a Jewish population engaging in Sabbath, traditional, historical Sabbath observance. That's just the only way you can take that passage. And of course, this isn't a problem to your average, your average premillennialist. The average premillennialist will say, that's right. There has to be a reconstruction of the temple. The strength of this text, the strength of this interpretation is that it takes the time markers seriously. The weakness is that it struggles on two points. The first point being the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and the second point being it doesn't offer a really sound understanding of verse 34, this generation will not pass away, at least as far as it is concerned with the original audience, the 12 disciples who posed the question. If we accept that the disciples knew they were asking a confusing question and they fully embraced that Jesus wasn't talking to them but some future generation, then it's not a problem. But that's not good exegesis. Any other Bible scholar will tell you that the first rule of interpretation is whatever this text means for us today, we have to first know exactly what it meant for those who first heard it, namely the disciples. I say, okay, well, what are my other choices? Maybe, maybe I'm ready to jump ship from my premillennialism. Where else, do I, where else do I have to go? All right, let's take a look here. Postmillennial interpretation of this passage. And you know what? <laughs> We do not have time. <laughs> Dustin says, keep going, keep going. No, 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 no. I, you know, I, we've gotten, time has gotten away from us. We still have the Lord's Supper to observe this morning. So we'll continue this next week. It's all very interesting. I hope you're not all drowning. Some of you are drowning. I could see it on your faces. This is a good moment for us to pause and catch our breath and get some air. So uh, although this is a little bit disjointed this morning. We will come back. It's important for us to observe the Lord's, the Lord's table this morning. So would you please bow with me uh, in prayer? Father, we thank you again for your word to the disciples through your son, Jesus. And again, Lord, we ask that your spirit would just help us to understand, Father, as we look at some of these difficulties, Lord, as we begin to unpack what this text is meaning, we just pray, God, that you would shed light on your word, that you would help us to understand what, what we can take away from it. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.